Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo and I'm the Adult Learning Programme Manager at the Royal Academy. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's event in which our panel of speakers will be discussing the artistic and ethical considerations of cultural appropriation within the arts. The event forms part of our ongoing Provocations in Art series, which explores provocative contemporary themes and subjects that feature in the RA exhibitions. The starting point for tonight's event was, oh, is the um, RA's current exhibition, Matisse in the Studio. The exhibition highlights Matisse's collection of objects from around the world, which informed his work and practice. However, it could be argued that the manner in which he referenced these objects had the potential to misrepresent the culture to which the objects belonged, which raises the question of when does referencing become misrepresentation and borrowing become cultural appropriation. So in this discussion, we'll be examining the issues encountered when artists use cultural referencing in their work. To introduce our speakers and tonight's discussion in more detail, I'm now going to hand over to our chair for tonight's event, Bidisha. Bidisha is a British journalist, critic and broadcaster for the BBC, Channel 4 and Sky. She specialises in international human rights, social justice, gender and the arts and offers political analysis and cultural diplomacy tying these interests together. She has also just directed her first film, An Impossible Poison, which she completed this week. Uh, so without further ado, please welcome tonight's panel. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for attending this sold-out session, which, as Kira said in her very generous introduction, um, is linked to the Matisse in his studio exhibition. If you go through the exhibition or you read the wonderful catalogue, which is extremely beautiful and represents both him and the exhibition very well, you will see things which you probably already knew about Matisse uh, in the first instance. So the joyful use of colour, light and shape, his pleasure in objects uh, and his wide range of influences. In our pre-event discussion, we were talking about how for Matisse, the objects he considered and collected were not Freudian-style objects of dark fetish, but touchstones of inspiration and creativity. He was quite faithful to his objects throughout his creative life. He gathered them around him. His daughter photographed them uh, as a sort of object biography of who he was as an artist. But any politicized late 20th century or early 21st century viewer might be made uneasy by the cultural messages and hints which are underlying that first full view. Matisse was extremely well-traveled and very cultured himself. You will see influences from India, Southeast Asia, Algeria, Morocco, and Southern Africa and Central Africa in terms of the objects and the textiles and the figures that he was inspired by. But the question also arises of how these images and references could be used to reinforce stereotypes or work into a, a, a problematic discourse of exoticism, passivity, sensuality, and the primitive, even of gravity and profundity in a complicated way, which we are going to discuss. Uh, my name's Badisha, I'm a writer and broadcaster, and tonight we have Ellen McBreen, Wessie Ling, and Yinka Shonibari. We'll have an hour and a quarter. Uh, 
which will be broken down into an hour of us discussing freely, not combatively, but we are allowed to, to disagree. And the last 15 minutes will be open to you. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Please keep it to one or two lines, just so we can hear from as many people as possible. Without further ado, let me introduce our speakers in a bit more detail. You'll see that we have a real expert panel. Uh, to my immediate left, we have Ellen McBreen, an art historian specializing in late 19th and early 20th century French art and visual culture. She is currently living in Paris for a year. She's the co-curator of Matisse in the studio and the co-editor and author of the accompanying exhibition catalogue. She is also the author of the book Matisse's Sculpture, The Pin-Up and the Primitive, which was published by Yale University Press in 2014. Next to her, we have Wessie Ling, a cultural historian and visual artist who uses text and installation to create work that addresses the cultural property and soft power of fashion. She studied at Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design and is currently a reader at Northumbria University and is the author of Fusionable Chongsam. She also co-edited Making Fashion in Multiple Chinas, which is forthcoming. Both in her writing and her visual art, she explores fashion, identity, globalization, post-colonialism, and cultural hybridity. Finally, but hardly least, you have someone who will be very, very familiar to you, Yinka Shonibari, MBE, studied first at Bayam School of Art, which is now, of course, Central St. Martin's College, and at Goldsmiths. His work explores issues of race and class through painting, sculpture, photography, and film. Through these, he questions the meaning of cultural and national definitions. A feature in his work, which you will notice, is the brightly colored so-called African batik fabric that he buys in London. This type of fabric was inspired by Indonesian design, mass-produced by the Dutch, and eventually sold to the colonies in West Africa before having a further life in the 1960s when the material became a new sign of African identity and independence. And it's those subtleties, contradictions, and journeys that we'll be unpicking a little bit. So without further ado, let me come to you, Ellen. As I mentioned, Matisse was not consciously a plunderer or a stealer of other people's influences. So how exactly did he absorb and reference images and objects from around the world? Well, in one word, I would say slowly, <laughs> because he was someone who, as I hope our exhibition shows, had a broad range of interests, um, a visual intelligence that brought him to study uh, all kinds of objects from around the world. And for those of you who have uh, had a chance to see the exhibition, um, around around the third gallery, um, this theme of cultural appropriation really begins in earnest. Um, and you had mentioned, you know, in your re opening remarks, uh, whether this might borrow or bother a 21st century politicized visitor. Um, when we were planning the exhibition, uh, Anne Dumas, who's here in the front row, our, my co-curator, um, and Helen Burnham from Boston, we knew that cultural appropriation was a very uh, significant theme of the exhibition, and we wanted to make sure that that came out. Um, we talk about it in the preface, and if it does make uh, people question the ethics of this borrowing, um, that's great. As a co-curator, that's what you want, right? People to sort of question what they're looking at um, and to revisit a modernist artist that a lot of people think they know, 
with new questions and new ideas. Um, secondly, we hoped that uh, even though the title of our exhibition is called Matisse in the Studio, we hope to at least acknowledge that uh, the world doesn't begin and end at the studio door. And that when artists like Matisse are uh, borrowing and appropriating from uh, African cultures, traveling to North Africa, studying Chinese uh, works of art, um, this has a real connection to politics and structures. So we're looking, for example, at this Matisse standing nude, um, which for those of you who've seen the exhibition is in the nude uh, third gallery. One of the things that we had hoped um, the story that we wanted to tell in this particular gallery um, was Matisse struggling really with a source that was going to have profound consequences on his art and arguably all of French uh, modernism, this encounter with uh, sculpture from West and Central African uh, cultures that he starts collecting in 1906. So when you first walk into the gallery, you see a still life uh, that he makes right after he uh, acquires his first sculpture, which is this um, power figure from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And interesting enough, the, the still life that he makes is unfinished. And it's almost as if Matisse um, is trying to figure out what he's gonna do with this new resource in his studio. It's unfinished and in many ways, I think it's because he's kind of suspicious of using African art as a kind of exotic trinket. You know, objects uh, that are just sort of hanging around in the studio. Um, and so he starts using African sculpture subsequently, and this is what we hope the rest of the gallery really suggests, in a much more interesting way. Um, he is, you know, borrowing, a really in a conceptual way, a whole abstract language for representing the body. And he's doing that in a way that is already kind of articulating or sort of, you know, combining with, with themes that are already in his work. It's one of the reasons why although we use the term cultural appropriation to describe this action that's happening in the studio, I also like the word translation, uh, which we can maybe come back to a little bit Doesn't later on. Doesn't calling it translation take away the ethical edge of what is actually happening? I'm not sure. I mean, if you know what text someone is translating from, um, well, we can talk about this in more detail, but I, I do think that translation also... Um, tends to acknowledge that like when you are working from one say text to another something's lost and something's gained when you are translating from one text to another you, sometimes it's based on misunderstanding which can also be also productive and in Matisse's case it, it was um, but secondly I just wanted to, to just say that the objects that you see in the exhibition um, were available to Matisse and other European artists precisely because of the structures of colonialism. So here's a, a shot of the um, a nude gallery installation. Um, that beautiful Cote d'Ivoire sculpture in the center, um, you know, that was in France and available to Matisse and other uh, European admirers, you know, precisely because uh, of colonialism, right? So the what we call modernist primitivism, this idea of, of, of modernist artists borrowing from, from cultures they uh, nostalgically dreams uh, were so supposedly primitivism. It's kind of the artistic corollary to colonialism, but it's not the same thing. Anyway, these are very complex issues. We hope that the exhibition 
um, will open some dialogue about this that's happening in the early 20th century, but certainly is completely relevant to today's political situation. Um, we're able to treat that, I hope, with a little bit more subtlety in uh, the catalog. Um, but the, the, the issue of cultural appropriation is definitely something we had, we had hoped to uh, come out of this exhibition, which is why I'm so happy we're having the panel. Let me bring in Yinka Shonibari, because I can see you listening and making your notes there. On the one hand, cultural appropriation for people who are politicized and already au fait with the discourse is a burning issue. On the other hand, I'm very aware that we are here on the panel and we are talking about it in a way that is so diplomatic, that is so uh, generous towards all the various viewpoints that I'm also almost afraid that we are collapsing down the ethics and the politics into what is really a much more emollient uh, event. I, I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, both uh, politically and socially, but also in your own work. You know, so. Well, cultural appropriation, you know, the use of um, African masks in, um, you know, in the work of Matisse. I mean, there are, there are ways of thinking about this. We also have to remember that when Matisse, um, you know, was actually working, prior to Matisse would have, you know, prior to Matisse, people were making kind of pastoral paintings, very academic um, life drawing. The whole story of modernism, you know, that whole story was basically turned around. So we're not just looking at um, representation. We're looking at, you know, a whole language, a whole, a very different formal language. So that, you know, the African um, objects were meant to be sort of mysterious objects. And also, the formal language was very different. So the Matisse and Picasso had a, um, a very strong interest in um, African uh, imagery. And the, the mask um, over there on the, my right, um, I, think, I believe that Picasso had one of those and Matisse. So there was this kind of competition between them. So, I don't think it was actually a question of um, uh, morality. Of course, it, you know, it was more about formal innovation and kind of fascination with mysterious, um, you know, uh, African ritual objects, and that was, of course, shocking to polite society because they were seen as uh, overtly sexual and crude, uh, and so on. I thought about three things when I started thinking about the, the, this talk. And I, I thought about the reasons, actually, the various reasons why artists have um, got involved in um, appropriating work. There are various ways of looking at that. Now, there's the fascination with exotic objects as a way to push the boundaries of modern art. Uh, secondly, there is the whole, because we, think about our own moral values. Now, we entered into a kind of post-colonial post period in which people were starting to actually question the power relationship between the West and others. And so a lot of contemporary artists thought about appropriation in relationship to um, institutional critique. So by institutional critique, I actually mean um, artists who were really starting to look at 
uh, the history of representation and actually challenging, um, you know, the image and the way that the image is being used. So in other words, um, I'm talking about basically the questioning of stereotypes. I don't want to use too many technical terms, but the whole kind of, you know, post-structuralism and the post, so the, the artists like, um, you know, Cindy Sherman, uh, Louis Lawler, there were artists who were actually deliberately taking um, historically um, oppressive imagery and, you know, parodying them or doing something with them. So, that, and then, of course, there is appropriation, which is simply based on admiration, inspiration. You know, people liked uh, other things from other cultures, and they were being influenced by that. And then, of course, there's cultural appropriation, which is which can actually, in many ways, in some cases, it's kind of it can be condescending. I mean, that that slide there, that's a, a Louis Lawler, and he um, she appropriated images. So she, um, there, there were American photographers like Cindy Sherman, like Louis Lawler, they will re-photograph another artist's work and present that as their work. But they're, they're asking questions about uh, the you know, representation and the power relationship between the person who, the patriarchal, the white male who produced the original one and they're kind of doing a shift or they're doing something with it. Can we go to the next one? So we'll just go quickly. And then, uh, of course, with appropriations, there's the, there's the issue of copyright. And there are artists who don't care about that at all. Now, this is um, Richard Prince. Um, he takes the archetypal male, uh, American uh, male image, macho image of the cowboy uh, from the Marlboro advert. And uh, Richard Prince has actually been sued many times uh, for his image. He's, he's constantly going through lawsuits, uh, constantly being taken to court. And um, so can we go to the next one? Yeah, this is the really... Oh. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's um, and that's one of mine. Um, again, I would say that my work more or less falls into what I would describe as the kind of institutional critique, and so it's more of a kind of a parody of a well-known image, and then I do something with that. But I won't talk too much about that, so we just go to the next one. And that's just another example of something I've done. And, you know, I mean, some people describe it as sort of, you know, deconstruction, deconstruction, but it's, um, again, it's kind of, so it, it's almost like a sort of, uh, you know, Picasso in reverse. So Picasso took African art, he did something with it. And there's you know, an artist of African origin doing something with Western art. So we okay, go to the next one. And that's David. So this is um, another lawsuit. So this is Damien Hurst, uh, you know, appropriating a toy. And that artist who did the original uh, little toy also sued um, Damien Hurst for that. And there was a kind of a settlement. Okay, so we go to the next one. And this is again Richard Prince, very controversial. Uh, he took somebody's uh, photograph and then he just simply re-photographed it and represented it. And then Dagosian, his gallery, um, they went to court over that. And um, there must have been some kind of, no, I think Richard Prince actually won the case. In the, yeah, he did win it. Uh, so can we go to the next one? 
So this, this, this side of appropriation that's actually uh, very kind of political, it's this thing I tried to talk about earlier, which is about the power relationship. So you've got an indigenous American there, but then uh, those Cherokee jeeps are being sold. So some people from that culture find it kind of condescending towards their culture. And it's hugely, it's a hugely kind of political issue. My opinion, I think that, I believe that people should be able to use anything they want to use, but in the way that we've got free speech, you do not shout fire in the cinema. You know, it's your responsibility to be, re you know, you have to be responsible for what you, for, for the images that you're using. But that's, so that's the kind of, you know, uh, uh, kind of moral side of our preparation. But can we go to the next one? And so I end it with this one. And, you know, and make of that what you will. Yeah. So, and then, you know, we can have a conversation. Yeah. We will open up to this, but what's so funny is that when I was uh, coming in on the train, on a packed train, there were three uh, young gentlemen in the, in the carriage standing up having a conversation, and they were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, my friends are working at a gallery in New York. Yeah, his dad knows someone. You know, his dad is paying his, uh, his rent for the next year and a half, because you know in New York, you know, rent is the most expensive thing. And I realized that they did indeed work in the art world and the kind of entitlement which is implied in all of this was somehow absolutely real and embodied and unquestioned. So what was interesting was the unquestioned privilege of all of this. That This was all just a sort of joke that the world is there for you to take and enjoy. And if you happen to make hay while the sun shines, well, you do. And uh, I, I, I said nothing, but I, I smiled to myself over it because it, it was classic. Uh, Wesley Ling, let's come to you. You've been incredibly patient, but you've had the benefit of having a primer of knowing what everyone else thinks first. Uh, you bring us right up to the modern, the present day because you are across fine art and fashion. And something we've been discussing is what about the rebuttals of accusations of cultural appropriation? The idea that an artist who's criticized for taking something that's not theirs or that they don't understand, turns around and says, what's the issue with it? This is something I like, I admire it, I am inspired by it. It's a novelty, it's a form of mystery for me. Who are you to say anything about what an artist takes or doesn't take? I think um, you pointed a very good point with that, um, um, dif well, with the similarities and also differences between the art world and also the fashion world. And uh, we come across qu quite a lot of examples in the fashion world where recently we have a lot of discussion on cultural appropriation, particularly as we discussed earlier on about that um, recent example of Marc Jacobs' um, 2017 um, pastel dreadlock shows where he sent down um, tons and tons of uh, white models but wearing sort of pastel dreadlocks. So that was one of the accusations that he's um, that he's been um, uh, experiencing uh, with the press at the moment. Um, the response that he had was primarily that he didn't see colours of people; he only see people. So it looks as if it is quite um, a, um, a sort of democratic way of uh, getting away with that questions without really getting the 
nitty-grittiness of the issues of race and power. And and I think at the same time, um, earlier on we also talk about this sort of um, uh, power relationship in the art world and also in the, in the fashion world. And in the fashion world, we had quite a lot of um, um, uh, sort of ideas about how fashion is already in the market. It's meant to be uh, um, a business uh, a business approach and also a commodity. So um, the idea about fashions needed to be sold um, in the market is quite kind of um, uh, um, uh, an understood uh, statement. Therefore, many of those um, uh, discussion that we draw around uh, within that subject is primarily about whether cultural appropriation is a bad or good thing. And at the same time, because um, we also need to remember that um, this subject really arise because of the, race, the rise of uh, racism in the contemporary time, and also uh, white supremacy really go on to the extreme, where that, whereby um, the, uh, the privileged class and also the deprived community find that there is something about them saying that enough is enough. So we have a very strong sense of um, emotion looming around this subject, and often criticism is more emotional than rational. Do you think also that uh, you mentioned white supremacy and racism, and it's hard to tally those very powerful phrases with what we think of the, the art world, the fine art world as being, which is extremely sophisticated, extremely global, huge amounts of money, fame, profile, power, passing amongst these institutions. Are you saying that all of those actually much darker and more sinister forces are still embodied within the industry? I think pretty much so. I, I won't say that, well, um, fashion's particularly dirtier than the, than the art world. I think, well, both worlds has its own um, sort of business market, and we have to understand that these are objects which are meant to be sold, and they are commodity. So um, these, two, these two worlds are actually crossing each other, and that accusation is always there in terms of uh, appropriation or appreciation that many people want to use the another term in order to hide away from it. So so I think it is not something that we can answer, whether what should we do. Um, but what I've actually was intrigued is how much um, education is actually appropriate that, because in, in many ways, um, artists or even um, fashion designers, they are also encouraged to look into other cultures and seek inspiration from. And that sort of influence is actually very much become the DNA of their creation process. So in a way that we may blame artists or blame designers, but at the same time, the institution also has a, has a role to play. Um, Ellen, let me bring you in here because Wesley brings out lots of extremely interesting points. I'm going to put the same question to you, Yinka, as well. Uh, the notion of inspiration as a kind of hoovering that you look into the world and you, you take what you respond to and whether or not it's racist, that's probably happening at, happening at an unconscious level, not a deliberate level of, well, this is something I wanted, I'll take it. Can any one culture or group of people ever be said to have dominion over or own any set of cultural influences? Oh God, I hope not, no. I mean, I think that um, power and race come into any encounter with uh, otherness and difference. And certainly, you know, in Matisse's case, um, his vision of uh, African bodies, whether he's looking at them in photographs or in sculpture, 
um, is conditioned by, you know, sort of the racial thinking of his day. Um, so he may be looking at those objects with fresh artistic eyes, but he is bringing a whole uh, kind of ideological baggage. And certainly, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a power dynamic um, when Matisse does it, there's a power dynamic when Marc Jacob does it. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no getting around uh, the fact that barring something uh, also is about appropriating someone's voice. Um, I think the more pertinent question is, is sort of, instead of kind of demonizing this, this term of cultural appropriation, is, is trying to consider each uh, act of borrowing on its own terms. I think intention is really important. Um, so, for example, I, I was thinking about appropriation um, this week too, and two examples uh, came to my mind um, to bring us really recent. Uh, so the one on the left is, you know, a, a screenshot that a friend uh, friend uh, sent me and was like, oh look, you know, Matisse is being appropriated again. So Gucci is, you know, launching a line of a very she-she uh, trinkets. You know, you can get a little vase for two hundred and fifty dollars, and get a very expensive small pink plate exactly. for about three hundred. Exactly, exactly. So in the in the publicity for it, you know, they're they're borrowing from a Matissean aesthetic. An appropriation that is it's so banal that you know we don't even really raise an eyebrow. Um, on the other side of the screen is an appropriation that is uh, really problematic. Um, a group of uh, Palestinian uh, Bedouin women uh, were thought that they were collaborating um, with a an Israeli designer, um, and so uh, they did the embroidery on this dress didn't realize that the dress would be in uh, New York Fashion Week for a fundraiser um, where the funds were going to a group called OR, um, which happens to be involved in resettling many villages uh, in the Negev and, uh, you know, sort of in many cases sort of over uh, what were once uh, Bedouin villages. So I think we can, you know, while this dress might be taken out of context and kind of celebrated as, you know, the possibility, a symbolic possibility for um, cultures to come together. Um, obviously, the, 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 the function of, 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 you know, of, of where the, the, the money for this labor went to <laughs> is very important. So these are two acts of cultural appropriation um, that don't really, uh, that don't really sort of um, deserve the same term for them. I mean, the, the second example is actually sick, isn't it? Uh, so there's a psychological game-playing, advantage-taking element where part of the pleasure for the designers is, you know, <laughs> yes. getting them to, to do this work. Yes, and well, then I, reselling I, it into yeah, a damaging... I should, I should point out that the um, Israeli designer... Uh, it says that he was very transparent about what the the the, the project was, um, and so there's a there's a conflict about you know what exactly was the arrangement and the agreement, um, and this is something that you know they're taking legal steps now, um, and so that's what cultural appropriation has become. I mean the slides that 
that Yinka showed us, you know, cultural appropriation in the, in the, in the 1980s, at least in the art world, was something that seemed very countercultural and seemed like, you know, an appropriative act of sort of um, a lot of feminist artists, a lot of artists who were interested in sort of um, taking back a kind of uh, mainstream culture that they had been excluded from. Um, and interestingly enough, now when you he hear the word cultural appropriation, it is often, you know, the next, the next paragraph is about a, a lawsuit. <laughs> Um, so, m money is, is, is clearly uh, a huge part of this, um, and I think when people hear the word cultural appropriation now, as opposed to when it was used in the 1980s, um, they think that someone is getting ripped off, and that the original voice of the maker is being erased, and I think that's the central issue. Well, Yinka, let me bring you in here, because it's not just about being ripped off, is that we started this uh, section of this, the discussion talking about ownership and who has the cultural or even perhaps the, the historical or the psychological rights to a set of signifiers that they really do truly deeply understand, only to see it perhaps either sold back to them or somehow resold on without that understanding. Uh, what's your take? I mean, I'd be very careful here to bring morality into creativity. I mean, I, I think that actually there is no uh, culture that hasn't taken from somewhere else. Um, you know, the whole of European culture, um, even if you think about, you know, uh, a classical kind of Roman uh, culture, you know, a lot of it came from Greece. And you can't be a creative person if you're going to close your eyes. You know, you cannot make advances on any kind of culture if you're going to create some kind of cultural protectionism, I don't think it makes any sense at all. I don't think you should be creating anything if you won't open your eyes and look around. So, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the issue, the, the, the moral aspect of this, that is, that is something that's contextual. You know, I mean, the example you gave of the, you know, of the women and the fashion show and everything, I mean, that's an individual case, and you know, it's always appropriation is always contextual. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're culturally sensitive, you know when it's okay to do it and when it's not okay to do it. But I certainly wouldn't get angry because a white person has got dreadlocks. I mean, you know, it's it doesn't make any sense to you wouldn't be able to design any jury. I mean, if you couldn't actually you know, uh, look at the history of other cultures and look at, you know, cultural appropriation could also be cultural admiration. You know, you could admire something and you could. So I don't think that the kind of culture police, you know, I don't think we need the culture police. You know, um, I, you know, I read a, a funny sort of um, on social media um, argument between people and this is rather crude, but there was an argument about, you know, should white women be allowed to twerk, for example? <laughs> I just thought it was a kind of a, 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 if they want to twerk, please, <laughs> be my guest. You know, so I really don't think, I think they're kind of petty, uh, petty arguments to have this kind of culturally protectionist thing going on. You can't be a creative person, full stop, if you're not going to look around. 
So I think that, that said, I accept all the kind, where there's a kind of a power imbalance. And it's because of the history of colonialism that we, uh, there, there's a sense like the kind of, you know, the Cherokee thing that I, um, you know, showed you. That was actually very disrespectful to a lot of uh, indigenous Americans. That said, you know, I, I wouldn't um, create some kind of censorship around what people can use and what they can't use. Because um, as long as you're not being deliberately insulting, but that's a personal decision, whether you actually want to go out and insult people or not. I mean, Richard Prince, for example, says he really doesn't care what people think. You know, he's been taking, there was a series he made where he took uh, screenshots of people's Instagram uh, pictures of young women, and he just simply, he didn't do much to them, he just simply reproduced them, and you know, they were shown in a gallery, and they were going for you know, um, $80,000, uh, but there were just images that he, and there were some people really loved being in, that, in the series of photographs, and some of them wanted him to take the pictures down. You know, so mixed kind of messages there. But I think, the, you know, if you're putting things out in the world, then don't get offended if people get, you know, uh, inspired by them or, or get, you know. But, but the, I also do understand that this issue of the imbalance of power. Uh, but then we don't want to be Philistines about this because, you know, you can't then say to people they can't create because that it's not from their authentic culture. I mean, what they consider to be their authentic culture is also a hybrid of many things. So it would be rather slightly ignorant uh, to have this essentialist issue about appropriation. Uh, Wesley Ling, let me bring you in here because actually you brought up in your previous point something that Yink has just touched on, which is really about history and of understanding that underneath these great blocks of history where we think of colonialism as one thing and white western culture as one thing, there are actually many billions of contradictory and interflowing uh, influences which are not often taught unless you are really drilling down into them and you yourself are trying to find out about the more complex nuanced story of mutual interappropriation. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about uh, the education needed to complicate that picture because you yourself are an academic. Um, that's a very good point and I think we probably need to do a lot more in terms of producing materials and also forging a sort of global vision um, in art history or even in fashion history and very often we don't have enough materials to even disseminate to students so in a way that we can't blame the creators not to not to have that consensus of what they should create or not what not but it is about how knowledgeable are they and I think it's not just simply about the creator but also to, talking about audience the observers the the consumers and perhaps a lot more discussion need to really flag up in public and let the consumers or let the public actually decide what they consider as um, 
uh, ethics or unethical. And, and I kind of agree with you and also Alan's points about these sort of, um, uh, um, we could not be um, a cultural policemen and we don't want to have that censorship in creativity or else there will be no creativity. And particularly um, if we believe that culture is fluid and there are so much interactions, exchanges and networks within it, we have to respect it. And it was, I mean, cultural appropriation has been adorned of art history, um, if not earlier on. So we have to acknowledge that. But at the same time, the questions of ethics has become increasingly more severe in the contemporary world. And that is something that we need to look into it. And, and just to be really clear, we're not talking here about being behaving like the police or banning anything or censoring anything. What, I think what we're all touching on is... It, wouldn't it be nice if the world was evolved enough that this idea of um, shallow theft sort of didn't arise because people had a much more sophisticated cultural and international and multicultural and multilingual understanding? Wesley, I'm going to stick with you because I'm very aware that you're politely speaking less than everybody else. So we're sticking with you for the time being. I wanted to talk a little bit about discomfort because when Yinka showed the picture of the Native American Cherokee next to the car... There was a rustle of immediate discomfort in the audience, a sort of, a sort of reaction, because it's a very striking uh, comparison. Where does our feeling of discomfort come into all this? Because it seems to me that Mark Jacobs' reaction to having an all-white selection of models and uh, with wearing dreadlocks and saying, well, I'm colorblind, so I don't see the fact that I've got all-white models, is actually an expression of discomfort. It's a desire to not deal with it. Um, well, there are lots of desire of not dealing with that. Um, well, probably Mark Jacob is just one of the examples, and then Yinka's example is another one. But I actually want to point to more about the sort of um, culture of ownership. And I think primarily what we are facing nowadays is also about how much we wanted to claim possession or claim ownership for something. And therefore, when culture has been appropriated or when something has been a copy, just in a sense, some um, community would have that sort of feelings as if there is something that they shouldn't, um, the power, that the, the high power shouldn't really approach it. I think that's that sort of um, um, that sort of feelings really come about, and I think there's also other um, corporate pressure around that as well. And I recently. Um, I was actually currently looking at, um, currently doing a project on the uh, laundry bag, which is a checkered bag, which you probably find it quite a lot in laundry shop, and is a very cheap plastic uh, bag. Um, everybody, everybody use, and obviously there has been appropriate so much as well. Um, in but, they, but they times. have all sorts of synonyms. So I know them as the the internal migrant worker bag. Mm. You, I mean, yeah, everyone knows this kind of yes, time you mean indeed. that you're the big square ones and you put everything mm. into it yes. and you load them up on the train. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and everybody knows that this bag is coming from China. Um, but if you talk to different communities and different communities claim possession, claim that they have certain kind of I thought it affiliation. Was <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and and that was a fascinating story when I uncover and when I talk to more of those community and and when I go to Thailand I realize that in fact they have their own versions of this bag 
but has nothing to do with China. So they produce it and consume nationally. And but the Thai people didn't even know, and they thought that it's probably come from China. They probably they thought they probably copied China with that bag. And until some people know that it was actually produced and uh, created within Thailand, then there are other types of people want to begin to claim ownership and want to um, sort of appropriate as part of the, um, the the new Thai creative industry. So there, I think there are also corporation uh, power and also institutional pressure to make it into um, to make to make it into something that um, more more than we can more than we can think about. I think something which is not necessarily. Um, ethical, but at the same time, um, we could also understand that why these different genres also compress and also pressure into something um, replicating the, um, the advanced capitalist society well, practice. So uh, we're going to focus now on practice because we have two artists. We have a very, very high-level curator here. So without wanting to put you on the spot, and I'll come to you first, but really, we have covered a huge amount. We've covered power and politics and aesthetics, uh, avoidance of critique, and also uh, a more nuanced look at what cultural appropriation is. How do you, in your practice, try to avoid the ethical pitfalls while still keeping open to international influences? How do you balance the ethics with the, the references? Uh, well, as a curator, um, when you have a, uh, an exhibition that touches on cultural appropriation, the first thing you want to do is just to be completely transparent and open about it and to offer people, uh, you know, sort of, uh, to not cover the story up, you know, to make it plain. I think that um, the more kind of cultures collide in a museum, um, I think that's a good thing. Sort of, that's something that I hope that um, in my own kind of curatorial work, um, you know, bringing uh, bringing sources of inspiration together, um, and you know, trying to break some of the uh, priorities that museums have. One is on the the named artist, you know, a lot of the objects that you see upstairs in the uh, Matisse gallery, um, you know, we have, we have Matisse's name, right? But we don't have the name of these, uh, the, the creators of those beautiful AIT fabrics. Um, so that would be a nice kind of habit to break, is this sort of focus on, on, on only the production of, of, of named people, because so much, of, uh, so much of the rest of the creative productions we don't have names of. Um, so I'd like to see sort of more uh, m more collisions in the spaces of museums, and hopefully, as, as a curator, maybe I can contribute in some small, you know, tiny way uh, to that. Um, you know, we're also kind of um, in an, in a in a in a in a way that sort of echoes the essentialism that um, Yinka mentioned. Uh, in the museum and art world, you, you sort of get into your little box of a specialty. You know, like I know. I know French art from 1848 to 1914, and that's my specialty. Um, and working on this exhibition um, was really an opportunity uh, for me to kind of grow intellectually. I had to like learn, uh, you know, about objects that I didn't know anything about before, and reach out and talk to people and figure out that these were living traditions. And you know, like, you know, what's Galate masquerade? Like, is it still practiced? Um, and so uh, I'm hoping that you know. That's the kind of thing, hopefully, that 
my individual experience of the curator of this exhibition, if we can sort of replicate that getting outside your box, um, you can have more pr productive and, and, and maybe even messy conversations about this back and forth between one culture and the next. I do know, though, that we're not going to really learn anything if we continue to um, have a kind of this is mine and that's yours uh, attitude about um, cultural borrowing. I want to bring Yinka in here because your two images of your own work really speak to that idea of conversing and not just uh, taking but sort of answering back and reproducing, taking a classic and then actually bringing it into even greater dimensionality and colour and life and injecting these so-called classic works actually with a kind of humour and a depth which the originals don't necessarily have. Well, you know, as you were speaking there, I kept thinking about some um, African sculpture that I've seen, I think dated kind of 19th century African sculpture, the, the kind of caricatures of white Europeans uh, that they'd seen. And uh, so, you know, there is travel in the other direction as well. And there were literally just caricatures of, you know, white people. And so I think that, um, there's an assumption that the other is somewhat sort of inferior and the agency of the other is not taken into account. Actually, the other may also want to appropriate mainstream culture. So do you see what I mean by that? So it's a, it's a kind of a two-way traffic. So we can't just simply assume that uh, just because people were colonized, they lose their agency and they don't necessarily want to appropriate as well. And, you know, I, I think that the works of people like, you know, Cindy Sherman uh, as well, you know, I mean, Cindy Sherman takes, you know, this kind of images of women from kind of B-movies, and she kind of, you know, mostly kind of patriarchal creations, and she turns that on its head, and she does, you know, so that actually the so-called other has agency too, and the, the so-called other can, uh, you know, take, so it can break the kind of power relations, you know, and I think that as, as artists as well, you know, the freedom to create, to be inspired, should be kept open, and I don't think that one should insist on one's uh, powerless inferiority you know, I just don't think that it's as, some people are not essentially, uh, you know, they're not essentially disadvantaged. So we can't project disadvantage onto certain groups of people. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely, and I love what you say, the power to create should be kept open, which is a beautiful way of thinking about it, really, that creativity shouldn't have any limits on it psychologically or in terms of internalized uh, inferiority. Uh, but I want to come to Wesley Ling because we have gone through the slides and I want you to talk a little bit about your work because you are positing a very fine satirical eye uh, on the art world and on the fashion world and on uh, subtle forms of appropriation which happen, which are usually unseen. So it's all about the labor that happens behind the scenes of this apparently very glamorous, very beautiful elite world. Don't, don't get embarrassed now that we're talking about your work. <laughs> yes, I said, well, I never, I, 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 didn't, I didn't prepare that I have to talk about my work, so I don't really know how to begin. But um, I was 
Um, I'm interested in um, fashion because it was it has this very strong immaterial properties, um, which works um, just magically with um, visual arts with that sort of symbolism at the same time. But um, interestingly, when you when 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 I see my work now in this context, we're talking about cultural appropriation. Um, that reminds me of this old work which I did. Um, also reflect back to what you said about discomfort. Um, that is the um, the Chinese will call it chu pao, or many people know as um, Chinese dress. Um, and precisely, this dress has been appropriated in many forms through popular cultures and through our history. And there was indeed a lot of discomfort when this dress is worn by Europeans. And the, um, and the Chinese literally consider them the demeaning the dress. So there's a lot of these um, uh, kind of connotations still um, circling around. Um, I'm very interested in those sort of perceptions and also this power relation with um, the fashion world as well as fashioned, and that kind of draws me into looking at the very different forms of it. And and interestingly, um, another one which also goes back to your point about um, labour was this one that um, that we really addressed on um, the transnational aspects and also the fluidity of culture. Just like we said about um, anything which has on the surface values of uh, made in Italy doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. So the way that I try to portray it as of how a clothing label should literally look like was what well, it actually end up in a, in a work like this, which actually dissect um, how we saw things on the surface and, and the um, sort of uh, material production at the back. Uh, it makes me think of once I was in the Jean-Paul Gaultier boutique, I saw a beautiful coat, a velvet coat for £2,000. It was in the 90s, so it was worth more than two grand now. And the, uh, the label said, made in Cambodia. And I, I wondered exactly how, if you reverse engineered it, what was the starting point of the coat, not the end point. I wondered if you could say a, a little Can bit. Can I just jump on to please, your please, point? Please. What I found discomfort now to, on a personal stand is nowadays when I find labels, particular clothing labels, um, which was um, meant to be a French label, but on the tag it says made in China, designed in Paris. So that really reinforced that sort of power relationship and that really makes me so discomfort. Exactly, because the implication is, well, the real work, which is mental work, happened in Paris, but just the, ha the hands, the nameless, faceless hands, well, they were in this other place that you don't need to think about. Yeah. However, the, uh, the, um, the, the labor or the factories in Paris are also, well, have a, have a, with a mixture of immigrants, with a mixture of very different kinds of ethnicities at the same time. History also told us that um, even back to 20th centuries, and there's a mixture of, um, of ethnicity working at the back of any sort of fashion atelier. So it is almost a myth that anything made or design in Paris has to be coming from the French. So I think that's also another thing. It is still pending even on a contemporary time. Well, these are exactly the socio-political realities that are making me permanently angry and un un underpinning exactly what we're talking about. Ellen, let me bring this to you and bring us right up to the, the 21st century in the future because I love what Yinka says about the, the so-called other still has agency, still has the power to create, to answer back, not just to appropriate, but also really subvert. You take something, you do 
whatever you want with it. My reservation would be, are we heading towards actually a kind of globalization which is really a corporatization, that all these subtle cultural influences won't flow equally left to right and up and down, but actually uh, major institutions, large companies, big conglomerates, the ones that run most of the fashion industry, which hoover up all these apparently different labels, they will be the dominating narrative that really will have a kind of Anglo-American visual language, not something which is free and equal for everybody mutually. Yeah, I'm sorry. Was there a question there? Remind me what your question is. Is the log We are talking ahead to a future in which yeah. we would like to see a mutual exchange of lots of different influences. Sure. Actually, the most likely endpoint is a kind of Anglo-American uh, corporatization and uh, agglomeration of influences which are very heavily weighted on one side. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's inevitable. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, a pure pessimist, um, and I do think that there are moments um, in which you have this kind of uh, eruption and, and, and uh, hopefully a, a kind of voices that are um, outside of the mainstream ones um, are indeed available if you have the energy and curiosity and passion to look for them. Um, it is true that uh, we think maybe we live in a world because we are so connected um, that we are more global. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely uh, true. Um, when things become so hyper-available uh, on the internet, um, you know, often uh, the sort of the origin of where something started from is lost. I mean, I remember when a kid, when I was a kid, it's like if you wanted to, um, you know, steal somebody's dance moves, you had to actually like go to that region or, you know, go to that club. And, and now it's like you just get on YouTube and it can be you, you're stealing something from somebody else who stole it from somebody else who stole it from somebody else. And so the entire genealogy of what you're borrowing from is, um, is erased in that kind of, uh, that, that hyper way that everything is so incredibly available to us now. Um, but I'm not entirely uh, pessimistic that um, it is impossible to still seek out um, authentic expressions which are exciting and, and, and mind-changing. Let me put that same question to, to Yinka and Wesley Ling briefly and there'll, there'll be one more after that. Then we're going to open up because we would love to hear. We can, we, we, can hear the, we can feel the audience sort of gearing up for a question, but that, that question was about whether globalization will, will actually make the global conversation culturally more monocultural rather than more multi-layered. Um, I mean, you know, some of these arguments I see as uh, uh, economic ones. Um, if you look throughout history, you know, the people, the poorest people's cultures seem to be the most desirable to the wealthy. You know, there's something edgy, there's something, you know, uh, you know, in France, the 18th century, you know, peasant clothes were very fashionable, um, you know, so people pick from what they can't have or what seems a bit risque or a bit distant. But then, you know, the, the argument is always controlled by the richest people. So the richest people appropriate because they've got the economic means to appropriate and it's different. This was, I mean, so there's a kind of 
economic and political arguments. So if the West, you know, in a few years' time, it may be that actually we all want to speak Mandarin and we all want to be Chinese and we all want to be, you know, just what I mean. So it depends on where the power, where the power is. And we copy that, or we copy things that seem so really exotic. But we've got the power to, you know, but there's certainly, I don't think this whole debate, I don't think you can have this whole debate and then exclude the economic argument. You know, it, it's always about money and power. And so the, the dominance will always be with the richest, you know, in the way that the Romans dominated Greek culture and took over. And then it became kind of Roman. Jesus was, I mean, so it kind of moves depending on, you know, the Ottoman Empire, you can say the same. You know, so it sort of moves around depending on who has the means to dominate the most. Wesley, let me bring you in. The last question, just to give you all a heads up, is just a very short one on how you'd like to see this debate moving forward, uh, practically in terms of your work as artists, as practitioners. But I wonder if you could answer that previous question about uh, who is it that controls the global conversation? Will the global conversation become skewed because of the power relations? I, th I do agree with Yinka's um, point about the cooperation power being really in sync with um, where we're situating now and we cannot neglect about economic power because it's all, we will all experience that as a huge pressure but I often think about whether there is certain kind of, um, or maybe what what is the kind of new resistance that we could have um, as an individual um, I I've, I've often feel like I would be very sad if look back 50 years afterwards and say, well, what was so influential in the 21st century would be global power. I'll be very, very sad if not something new coming up as a resistance with that sort of control. And, um, and I, I don't know what, what could be the solution, but I often think whether the digital evolutions would allow us to have a bit more um, autonomy um, with the young generations who are pretty, um, uh, pretty capable of serving um, the, uh, the technology, could that be a way to? Um, could that be a? Could that be a sort of um, a resistance to the, the the big power that we cannot break it down? So, so that's something that I was thinking of, but I don't really have an answer. You know what, your line about searching for the possible resistance to all of these big hegemonic powers is so great that I'm, I want to end there before we open up to the Q&A. Hi, yes, that was a really interesting um, discussion. Thank you very much. Um, I suppose one of the things that worries me about the campaigns against cultural appropriation is that, and, and a little bit, I think, in this discussion, we haven't really um, explored how much they have led to censorship already, particularly in the US. So there was the particular example of the artist who uh, painted um, Emmett Till in her, his coffin. <clears throat> that was sort of not officially shut down, but it was effectively shut down by campaigners standing in front of the picture. And that atmosphere of censorship seems to me very dangerous in relation to this debate. So it's not really just an intellectual debate. There's something going on, often actually left by, led by sections of the left. And I think that one of the things we should really be asking here is shouldn't we be defending artists to not care what people think, because that seems to me such a major stifling of cre creativity if you start from the point of view of caring what people think. So though I respect what people have said about respect, I think there's a dangerous, a potentially dangerous aspect to that where we start putting 
people in the position where they're artists in the position where they have to be careful what they think. And I, um, I wonder whether particularly the, you know, the artists have found that affecting their work at all so far. Uh, shall we take one? Let's take one more. Right, yes, thank you very much. It was very interesting. I broadly agree with what Ying has said um, about you know, being open to other cultures and so on. But there's a very interesting case that's going on in the States at the moment, which pushes it to an extreme, which has led to all sorts of people resigning. It's occurred in feminist philosophy, and in, it, it concerns the notion of trans-identity. So, you know, it's now generally accepted that somebody can declare that they were born male but have become female. And there was this um, woman philosopher, who is to all intents white, who has declared that she is actually of a different racial origin and is writing from that perspective. And it has actually raised real questions about the limits of appropriating Again, I think probably it's the case that it's contextual. You know, I think in some cultures there are particular terms for people who think they belong to a different race. I think in Guyana it's probably the case. But I, you know, for me this really pushes it to an extreme as to whether or not there are limits to one's appropriate, well, I'm not going to say appropriation, association, identification, with another culture that's not one's own, and how the gender and race issues are different issues. That's interesting. Okay, so we have uh, two. One is on censorship, uh, the limits on artistic freedom, and also on uh, how far can you push a sense of identification, association, and uh, appropriation. Well, first to your, just for those of you who may not know the background to the, the recent story that the first uh, questioner, the, the painter is um, Dana Schutz, and she um, included a painting at the Whitney Biennial uh, earlier this year that was a very expressionistic rendering of the original photograph of Emmett Till, um, who was brutally murdered uh, and was a, a, in, in US history, a kind of um, a, a linchpin moment in the uh, civil rights movement. And um, Emmett Till's mother uh, had the uh, body of her son exposed and photographed uh, very bravely, so she wanted to have the, you know, the world see what they did to her son. So here comes Dana Schutz. She is a uh, white artist um, born in a suburb of Detroit, and she appropriates this photograph. Um, and it's included in the Whitney Biennial. Um, uh, an artist, a contemporary artist whose name is Hannah Black, who is from the UK but lives in uh, Berlin and New York, organized a, a petition. And basically the, the main charge uh, to remove the painting from uh, the biennial and also to, to, to even destroy it was that um, this was an extreme example of like aestheticizing an atrocity. And that uh, you know the, the 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 critique was that um, that wasn't a story that that wasn't a story that was hers to tell, right? Um, and then subsequently, the ICA in Boston had had already organized a um, a kind of exhibition of Dana Schutz's work, um, and that too was uh, protested. Um, the, the painting was not included in the ICA Boston, so there's, there were, there were two different kind of uh, you know collective voices saying that this was something that. Um, was troublesome, bothersome, and, and, and they were calls from artists, interestingly enough, 
um, to have the works removed and in an extreme case uh, destroyed. To be honest, I don't actually, this is a really tricky, I mean, I'm American, so I'm, I come from a, a much more, uh, we're, we're highly sensitive about all kinds of stuff in, in ways that I know make a lot of you know, people who live in Europe scratch their heads. Um, which is ironic because, of course, we don't, apart from um, Native American culture, we don't really have any culture, so it's all, it's all borrowing, but we seem to be the ones who are complaining the most about cultural appropriation. Um, but anyway, it, that's a really tricky case, and I don't actually really know, how, even now, um, how I feel about it. As a museum curator, I'm like, of course, no. No, no art should be taken out of an exhibition because you know, it, it, it makes people angry. That could be the point of, the di of, of to, to raise the dialogue. Um, but that, and, it's not my place to say either. And, and also we know that the story is still ongoing, so were the same uh, portrait to be resubmitted in a year's time, we wouldn't know quite how that would end. So let me bring in Yinka and Wesu on these, these two issues. And then we have time for two more quick questions. I mean, both uh, cases you mentioned to me, they seem to be, uh, you know, I actually don't see how, I don't see the difficulty there. I, I think that, I said earlier that you wouldn't shout fire in the cinema because you know it's socially unacceptable. Now, of course, you can shout fire, you know, you have the right, you've got freedom of speech, but you wouldn't do it. So if you're an artist, it's you know, of course, the principle of freedom of expression remains, but you, you understand fully well that the image of a dead black child that was killed, you know, that was something very hurtful to that family. Um, as a decent human being, you might actually decide not to use that image. There are plenty of other images you could use, or you might stick with your freedom of expression and use that image. I mean, I certainly would not dictate to an artist. I see that as an individual moral choice. Do you see what I mean? You have to, it's up to you. The principle of freedom of expression remains, but responsibility lies with the person who is doing that freedom of expression. So if you want to go to jail because you want to uphold your rights to say a certain thing or to, to abuse people, you have to accept the responsibility for that. But, but that does not take away from the principle of self-expression, uh, freedom of expression. I don't know if I'm making any sense with this. Wesley? You know. That's a very, again, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I don't think any art should be taken away, but at the same time, uh, some art could be quite controversial and it caused discomfort. And very often, it may as well be the point that the artist wanted to make. And it's a very tricky point as if how much ethical consideration that ones need to consider when you're going into a creative process. And therefore, um, it's not... Um, I mean, it's not my place to decide whether it should happen or the art should actually taken or not taken away. But I do agree that um, as a creator, we should have moral responsibility. 
This said, it may not necessarily be the case, particularly if I go back to the fashion world, because precisely designers trying to provoke because that could draw into more controversy, that could create also more exposure and PR publicity. So we are on a sort of... Um, a grey area to discuss this because at one point we know that the art world, be it the art world, the fashion world, they're both they are both commodity. So they're there out in the market for certain kind of gains. Um, it's, it's a tricky... It's, I, sorry, I would not have the answer, but it's a very tricky one. No, you make a great point, which is that we, really we should, we're talking about responsibility and respect. We're not talking about censorship and control. No, it's a fine distinction. We're not talking about behaving like the police. We're just saying that part of being an artist is also being a thinking, empathetic, complicated human being who thinks about the effects of their work. And, and that's, that's all we're, we're really saying. We have time for two more absolute quickies, please. Um, going back briefly to Matisse, um, looking at his cultural appropriation, it seems to be more from a stylistic point. And when I think of the work of the, two, of the artists on this panel, it's also from a sense of fun in a way. And in a style, in a, in a, there's a sense of humor in it. Obviously there's more to it than that, but that, there's some, that, that is something that I get out of your work. Do you have any comments as to, in that sense, where is all this today's cultural appropriation going? That's actually such a great question that I think we should have that as our closing question because you mentioned Matisse and you also mentioned humour and fun and that's a great closer. But I had promised another one here, so we're going to attack yours first. Well, just quickly, I think the um, Oliver Wendell shouting fire in a, the theatre came from when he made a judgement against someone in America who in the First World War was campaigning against America going into the First World War. So it was a metaphor. So actually what the judge did was jail someone saying, we don't, I don't think America should go into the First World War. And, and the metaphor was, you wouldn't shout fire in the theatre. And I guess that is the difficulty sometimes in a current... Cu the current political climate will change. So in the sense that if you're trying to stifle or think about what is appropriate or not, through a political mechanism for artists, that's really difficult because presumably, in some ways, artists have to be led by their own selves, because politics will change. So, so you know, it's just, you know, how do you manage that, I guess? Okay, these are, these are two great questions which fuse together. Uh, given the turbulent political times in which we live, uh, how do you uh, maintain a sense of your inner voice, your non-reactive voice as an artist? But also that wonderful question about Matisse, uh, Matisse's appropriations actually coming from fun and from humour and from joy and from beauty, as indeed do the works that we've discussed of your own today. So whoever wants to take that, there'll be a beautiful closer. So, Well, I mean, I, I, I would say that, you know, we, we all have a social responsibility. We, have a, we, we, we exist in a context. What's okay in one culture is not okay in another culture. It's up to the artist to decide if I do this, will this really harm me in this context? If I was in China, you know, I mean, Ai Weiwei is a good example. He did certain things, he, got, he went to jail. He could have done that here, maybe he'll be fine. Do you see what I mean? So it's up to you to make that judgment as an artist. If you're prepared to go to jail for it, then it's up to you. Social context is important. And then what you said about, um, you know, um, humor in, in art. Again, that's uh, contextual. Um, there are lots of the appropriation that happened 
in the 80s and the 90s, they were very much linked to French continental theory, and they were very much linked to, you know, post-structuralist discourse and deconstruction, you know, questioning the patriarchal order, questioning representation and so on. So there's a kind of uh, an intellectual climate around that work, you know, and some of it might be funny, some of it might, you know, but so I think context, you know, where they were doing it and the social things that kind of surround that, you know, has a lot to do with it, you know. There are artists who are quite happy to go to jail, you know, um, I, well, I'm not prepared to do it, you know, but somebody else might be prepared to do that, you know, so, you know, it just depends on where you are and where you're doing it. Wesley? Um, I think the two questions actually answer themselves um, in, in a way that, well, I, I suppose many artists, if not all artists, are also bound by the social and political environment around them. So very often that their, their work has been um, um, informed, if not having a dialogue with the surrounding areas that they're situated. But being an individual, being an individual artist, very often we are kind of quite vulnerable. But at the same time, um, we need to react or, or react on these situations that we're facing. So humor and irony could be a strategy in many ways, are strategies for artists to tackle those issues in a way that we cannot change the world and we're not politicians, therefore we do not have that power in order to tackle it. But using irony and humour could be a way to address some of those issues and also open up dialogue. And I think for many artists' work, we're not... if well, for some activists, maybe it's slightly different, but then for many artists, well, we, we want to change the world using visual tour. So that, that sort of irony and and humor allows us to extend the visual to reach a wider audiences and therefore allow us to speak um, um, our mind and also address the issues that we want to express. Thank you very much for that, Ellen. We come full circle, returning to the humor and the delight and the joy in color and form and shape that we discussed right in that first line of tonight's session. Uh, could you bring us back to Matisse and to that sense of play and of positivity? Sure. Uh, In one sentence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I would just like to echo um, what Yinga just said about the context and the importance of, of trying to go a little bit further than just um, a pleasurable view of something to try to understand the, the context of what you're looking at. Um, so for me, um, you know, when you say that Matisse's uh, appropriations are purely stylistic, I guess a, a, an interesting question to, to, to leave on is if that's even really possible. Is there such a thing as just doing something purely stylistically, purely visual, um, when we know so much about how these things come are, are attached to peoples and cultures and power structures. Um, so I, I, I hope that if we continue to think about uh, cultural appropriation, I know, you know, I'm a I'm a, a professor of the undergrads, and and this is an issue that I kind of come back to all the time. Um, it's a, it's a way in to another culture. It's a way in to tackling difference and 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 opening up dialogue. Um, but the context of what you're looking at is so important. So if there's anything that's going to sort of move us in a positive direction, it's uh, more visual intelligence and more reading history. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very, very much for those, those words and your thoughts. We have a few very quick thank yous. First of all, I think that we would like to thank you, the audience, because you've been so 
avid and so absorbent and uh, it, we really can tell and it really does make a, a huge difference. Thanks to the Royal Academy for giving us this amazing room. Thank you also to Kira Milmo and Sarah Sassanelli who I've been in talks with as we set this up. Their attention, their care, their sensitivity and yet their desire to push the edges of the conversation. Uh, you saw none of this because it happened in the, in the background in the lead up but it was really impressive. They demanded rigour and application from all of us. And finally, most importantly, please let me invite you to thank our amazing speakers, Ellen McBreen, Wesley Ling, Yinka Shonibari, and thanks to you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.